Well, hey, good morning, Story Church. I am so excited, as Kyle said, to be with you, get to share God's Word with you, and it is a total honor. I hear so many things about you, but now you're here in the flesh. Or maybe you're watching online. Either way, I'm really, really glad that you're here. Uh, that was a good word about the bald head. I'll just say this. Uh, I knew Kyle in high school. We used to call him Baby Gap because of his shirt size. All right, so I'm Pastor Baby Gap is not here today. You have someone who knows how to buy the shirt their size. Um, but I'm really, really excited uh, that, that he's here. I, I cleared that joke, by the way, just in case. I told him I was going to say that. What I love, though, is I was just sharing with some friends uh, right before service that way back, a story was very beginning. I think about 11 years ago, we were doing some pre, they were doing preview services. Maybe you are part of that. Maybe you weren't. Uh, and, and Pastor Aaron was leading in very beginning. There was just a handful of people there. And he asked a high schooler named John Gorvette if he would come sing and lead worship at those services. So in some way, I feel like uniquely connected to you because I got to be a part of the very, very initial beginnings and now to see where God has brought you in your own space and growing and reaching your community, uh, that's really exciting to me. I love Pastor Kyle and their family. Uh, Pastor Josh and his family both serve you so, so well, as you already know. Um, but I'm really excited for where God has us uh, today. I thought it'd be worthwhile, though, to give you a couple fun facts about me, because you may have never seen me before, have no idea who, who is this person. And so here are a couple of random facts about me. Number one, I've been at Center Church for just about five years, leading the, the church there. And before that, my wife and I were serving on staff together at a church in Detroit, and we met in college. And we've been married, my wife is named Lindsay, uh, for about eight and a half years, and she also serves in ministry with me, and it's been really exciting. One thing I love about where your building is located is I typically have meetings, as Kyle said, on the north side of Grand Rapids, and there's a Chipotle on Alpine that I tend to frequent way too often. Okay, so I, I drove up here. I said, hey, guys, good to see all my family at Chipotle, and then kept coming up to your building. So I love Chipotle. You can find me there. I have not checked out the Swan Inn, but maybe that'll be my next step. Who knows? I don't know. Maybe you're not. Maybe some of you are yes, and some of you just went like this. So I don't know. Maybe I'll go somewhere else. Afterwards, good breakfast, noted. Uh, another thing about me is last year, about six or so months ago, I started in a martial art, which I'd never done before. I started Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is essentially you're learning how to beat people up safely. That's what I would call that. You're not actually striking people, but the goal in Jiu-Jitsu is to choke people or submit them in some way. And so in the same way I started that, for the last couple of years, I have really enjoyed running. And so I figured these go really well. So if I lose in a fight, I can always run away, you know what I'm saying? So I'm trying to do both well. And then about a year ago on this coming Tuesday, my wife and I welcomed our very first child. Her name's Lennon Joy. Uh, here's a picture of the three of us uh, to our family. And so she's insane. And so she's not here because you would not listen to anything I said. Uh, but that's a little bit about us. What's funny is if you've ever had kids or you've had the privilege of maybe grandchildren, or maybe you've just parented someone else's kids for a season, is there's a lot about kids you can control. Like, I get, I get to control what Lennon wears every single day. I get to control what food she will consume. I get to control when, it, when she goes into her room to sleep, whether or not she sleeps is up to her, I guess. But I control when she goes in. I control a lot about her life. What's really fascinating, though, especially maybe you're in this, the opposite season where your kids are graduating or you went to an open house this weekend or you're in that season of life, 
There's also a lot about kids you cannot control. You know what I'm saying? There are things that I wish I could control about raising Lennon that are absolutely outside of my control. I mean, I, as hard as I try, cannot force her to go to sleep when I want her to sleep. It's just impossible. I've tried for the last year, just does not work. I cannot control when she's going to be in a good mood going to a friend's house and when she's going to be a terror going to a friend's house. I can't control if, if she shows up to, sh- to church with no clothes on and no shoes on because she just hates both of those things. I can't control that. There's some things I can control, but there's so much I cannot control. Here's what's interesting about our minds, and this is where we're going today. The majority of the last couple weeks, we've talked about things that we can control in our mind. But here's the question. What do you do with thoughts, hurts, or even negative events that were done to you? What do you do with the things in your life that go on in your mind that you cannot control? How do you respond to situations that were kind of inflicted on you? Not necessarily things you thought or things you wanted or things that you did, but things that were forced into your mind and continue maybe to live and to reside in your head. What do you do with those things? And that's where we're going today. As we close out this series, this is an important question for us to talk about. I remember being in 10th grade. And in 10th grade, I mean, I was a notoriously bad high school student. I was way more obsessed with studying girls and what I was having for lunch than I did study anything in my classes. And so my parents, because they were good and they were very strict, were like, okay, you don't want to study at home. That means you're going to go to school an hour early and you're going to sit in your classes and you're going to get like taught by your teachers all the stuff that you failed to study during the week. And so I was sitting in a particular, so 7 a.m., I'm sitting in my 10th grade geometry class And I'm sitting there all by myself because everyone else apparently did homework or cheated their way through, but I didn't have that luxury. I'm literally sitting there and Mr. B, my math teacher's in the corner. I'm sitting there, I'm working on my homework and I'm just like making, so it was geometry. I was drawing all bunch of shapes, but I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing here. And finally, the school bell rings. It's like, gotta go to actual classes. The day is kicking off. And Mr. B pauses for a moment. He stands up. He says, hey, hope you have a good morning, John. Just want to tell you something. I have never had a student try so hard and get so little results as you. Have a good day. I was like, uh, I don't know if that was a compliment. I, don't, I certainly didn't feel like it was a compliment, right? I walk out as a 10th grader, and that cut me. That cut me. There was an internal message that was implanted in my mind that I can try really hard at certain things and never succeed. Now, that happens when you're married. That, that happened for me as I was trying to come up and learn and study for ministry. John, you're going to try as hard as you can, but you're not going to get any results. You're not competent to get things done. That was the message. 10th grade. I'm 30 now, and I'm like, I should be over that, right? But there are internal messages. There's things that happen. There's wars that take place in our mind that if we're not careful and pay attention to them, they will destroy our lives from the inside out. They'll destroy your family. They will destroy your marriage. They'll destroy how you're trying to parent or how you're trying to be a grandparent. They will destroy uh, your workplace and your calling. They will eventually erode your identity down to something that's actually not true that actually is counterproductive to what God wants to do. 
Now, here's the, I'm going to take you somewhere in the Bible that maybe you've never been. I certainly have not spent a lot of time here, but it directly speaks to what do you do with those thoughts? What do you do with that war in your mind when things happen to you that you cannot control? Go with me if you have a Bible or you have a device you can search this to Lamentations 3, verse 16. We're going to actually read uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 19, but I want you to, to catch these first couple verses. And Jeremiah, who's a prophet of God, who's, who's writing these lamentations, literally laments, mourning songs, if you will, about the nation of Israel. Listen to what he says in verse 16. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I've been deprived of peace. I've forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. Now here's what he picks up in verse 19. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul, like my innermost place is downcast within me, is depressed within me. Yet this I call to mind and therefore, Knowing what I'm experiencing, therefore, I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those who hope in him, to the one who seeks him. It's good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good for a man to bear the yoke while he's young. I want you to catch what Jeremiah does in this book, because the book of Lamentations essentially, again, is a collection of laments, these kind of spiritual mourning songs and poems. This is, a, this is a Hebrew idea that we get even today. You can read the Psalms and find multiple different Psalms of lament and mourning and crying out uh, of songs of grief, songs of pain, songs of trauma that they're going through, why does Jeremiah write this? What is Jeremiah going through and how does that even relate to me? Well, Jeremiah is living in a time where Israel, his beloved nation and the nation God has called him to, to be a prophet in has been destroyed. Enemy nations have stepped in and sieged the city, destroyed their livelihoods, taken their women and children, have ruined their city. And this destruction, it's hard to even compare, but think about like kind of a, a World War II or even today, like a bombed out city. It just, there's nothing there. It's completely wiped out. Now, you know, if you've ever studied war, you watch the news or you're clued in, or maybe you have a family member who's a veteran, you can remember and you know that war is not merely physical. Like they're not just bullets and guns and, and raised buildings. It's psychological. There's a mental nature to war. There's a mental nature to your city being destroyed. Like you may live here in Comstock Park. It's hard to even picture. What if someone just bombed the whole place? But I couldn't go to Chipotle. You couldn't go to the Swan Inn for breakfast. Like that may be some of our biggest issues. But certainly if that did happen, there would be a mental war that begins to take place. Like, am I stable? Can I live here anymore? Maybe you grew up here, went to high school here. You're curious and wondering about the future. So what's happening for Jeremiah's people, for the Jews at the time, it's not just physical. It, it's psychological. There's a literal war in their mind going on. And why we dive into Lamentations today is because this is a powerful book to talk, not just about when, when things are good, when things are awesome, but what do you do when you have pain? What do you do with the trauma 
What do you do with the 10th grade teacher's words that live on in your head decades later? What do you do with all that? And Lamentations kind of gives us a clue into where we go with this. Here's the key, and here's what Jeremiah is saying here. What Jeremiah helps us to realize is that pain held is not pain healed. Pain held, friends, is not pain healed. If you're gripping pain, you're gripping the words of a, of a coworker or a friend or a spouse that cuts you, if you're gripping the trauma and the crisis that you endured, maybe decades ago for you, if you continue to hold that and fail, if we fail as disciples of Jesus to release that to him, we will never experience the healing touch that he wants to give us. Pain held is not pain healed. Here's what I grew up with. I grew up with a version of God that believed that he could not be kind of subject to my pain. Maybe you grew up this way. If you grew up in church, maybe this is a message you received. Most of us grew up believing that God needed to be shielded from the hardest moments of life. I had to protect God from my pain. I had to protect him from my trauma. The best way I can relate, relate this to God is I think about, uh, I was in college, just like some of you have been, and I realized in college, I need money. I need money to pay my tuition. My parents were like, you got to make this happen. You want to go, you got to make it happen. And so I worked every single summer. Sometimes I traveled and worked. Sometimes I was in the town that our school was in. And I remember the specific summers, like the first week, and my professor, who lived about a half mile away from where I live, said, hey, I'm trying to get a bunch of college students together. We're going to redo my roof. And I said, I totally lied. I said, oh, yeah, I can help you with that. I knew nothing about roofing. I didn't know how to put on a tool belt. I didn't know any of that stuff. But I said, you're paying. I will show up, and you can teach me on the job. So, so I go. We get up on the roof. Twelve hours later, we re-roof his house. Everything goes well. And, and some of my friends and my actually siblings who were helping out that day, they decide to do the smart thing. They take the ladder down off this roof. And I said, you guys, I am starving. We've been up here 12 hours in the hot, beating sun. I'm sweaty, I'm tired, and I need something to eat, need something to drink. You guys take your time going single file down the ladder. I'm just going to jump into the dumpster full of the old shingles. Right? Brilliant. You're like, should I even listen to this guy anymore? <laughs> But this was me, all right? So, so I jumped down, and the inevitable happens. I'm totally fine. No, I'm just kidding. I broke my ankle. That's actually what happened. I, I jump in, and like third-degree sprain, basically the doctor's like, it'd be better if you'd actually broken it. I'm not sure how you got this bad. But, but, so I kind of hobble out of the dumpster at the time. And what happens in my mind is I have a moment of realization. I live about a half mile away from my house, my mom is from Mississippi, okay? And that may mean nothing to you. I did not want to make my mom Mississippi mad at my dumb decision, okay? And so I didn't want her to say words that you're only allowed to say in Mississippi. And so I decided, you know what? Instead of calling her saying, could you please pick me up? I think I broke my ankle. I'm just going to walk back down the road to my house. Two steps in, I realized that's not going to happen, like, I, I was ruined. I had to be picked up. I eventually did call her and say, I, I think I jacked up my ankle. You're going to have to come get me and, like, hop, throw me into the back of your car and then take me home. What's funny, though, is some, what, what really kind of weirded and freaked me out about that is I didn't want my mom to have to enter into my pain. Like, I didn't want her because I was afraid of her reaction. Maybe, just maybe, you grew up believing God is just like that. 
He, he is stern. He will be Mississippi mad with me if I bring him into my pain. If I'm honest, if I do what, what Jeremiah does in Lamentations, if I get real about the things in my mind, the war that's going on, and how I am incompetent to solve the problem. I don't have the resources. I need help from the outside. But yet we don't go to God because we think he needs to be protected. And now that's obviously a humorous story. It worked out well. I can walk today. But I think about when I tend to do that, my relationships and and just the mental battle in my mind, I start to lose. Even this as early as this, like six months ago, my wife and I had a conversation and I just felt the need to be honest about something that I realized eight years into marriage I'd not been honest about. And that was really, really difficult. And I did not want to do it, which is why I hadn't done it for the last eight years. But I was trying to shield her from my pain. I didn't want her to think we had an imperfect marriage. I didn't want her to think that the person she married was not, was not the real deal or didn't have it all together. And I'm not saying that that's perfectly put back together. There's still a journey that we're on. But think about the difference in the relationship when I was fully honest and released those thoughts to her and she was able to receive them. It's a lot more like what Jeremiah is saying here in Lamentations. If you have your Bible still open, uh, you may have caught kind of a funny word in this passage. A funny word that I really feel like when it comes to the deepest, darkest moments of our life that shouldn't factor in. But for Jeremiah, it does. Listen to what he says again in verse 25. The Lord is good to those who hope in him, to the one who seeks him. Listen to what he says next. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. One more time. You already got this. It is good for a a man to bear the yoke while he's young. Can I just ask you a dumb question about the Bible? What What makes Jeremiah's pain good? How can he say that in the midst of this destruction of his city and this war going on in his mind as a prophet of God, that there's good? Like what we just saying, how can he say, God, you make all things work together for good? How can he say this? Well, he gives us a clue on the back end of saying it's good. Where does he say it's good? It's good to, to hope in God. It's good to seek him. It's good to wait quietly for him. And it's good to bear the yoke. And we'll talk about that in just a minute, what that means. That's what he's saying is good. The pain is not good, but it's the fact that he can release it. He doesn't have to hold it. That's good because this is where God's healing touch comes in and ministers and does the best work in Jeremiah's life. If you follow Jesus any amount of time and you've prayed and released something to God, you know exactly what he's talking about. Where things don't make sense, but when you release it to God, you release pain and hurt, you end up getting healing on the other side. There's an interesting uh, study going on right now in psychology around trauma, which is essentially the kind of after effects of pain or or difficult circumstance or crisis in your life. Dr. Bonnie Gray, who's a psychologist, says there's really three myths that a lot of us buy into when it comes to trauma. I'm going to kind of power through them, and, and then I'm going somewhere. The first myth is that anxiety, panic attacks, or trauma exists because I am failing in my faith. This is a myth that so many of us, even Christians, we can buy into, that I must be a failure in Christ if I deal with anxiety or depression or worry or struggle with panic attacks. 
She says the antidote to this is being willing to name the hurt. What hurt me? What was it? What word? What, what critical thing? What message? What circumstance? What, what injury caused the hurt? Myth number two, she says prioritizing time. This is a myth we believe to rest or, or to get healing is a luxury I do not have. Caring for my needs is selfish. She says this is a myth that we can buy into when it comes to trauma, that we need to hold it on ourselves. We need to hold it against ourselves and just make it right ourselves. And what ends up happening is, as you know, you, you tend to implode personally. You lose slowly the war in your mind. She says the antidote to this is taking time to tend to the hurt. If I have a broken ankle, the right response is not to walk down the road I need to bring somebody in. I need to get healing for my ankle. I need rehab. I need a cast. I need to do all the things you need to do to get healed. Myth number three, feeling troubled or worried is wrong. God doesn't want me to complain. How many of us have believed that because of how we are brought up or even how we understand faith today or understand the war in our mind God just said, how wants me to be happy 100% of the time? He can't handle negative emotion. God is too soft to handle real pain and real trauma. Dr. Gray is saying, I mean, this is a myth. What you do here, the antidote to this myth is to release the hurt. It's to take what you have, grip so tightly in your hands, and say, God, it's yours. I know that you alone can heal me. I know that you have what I need, and I'm going to release the hurt I'm going to release it to you so that you can touch me with your healing touch. Pain held is not pain healed. They are different things. One of my favorite names for God in the Old Testament is Jehovah Rapha, which means our God is healer. And Israel would refer different points in their story to the fact that they needed Jehovah Rapha to come in. Our God, the Lord is a healer. If you read the New Testament, I mean, we're in the Old Testament Lamentations, skip ahead to Jesus, right? Skip ahead to stories that you may know or stories that you've heard. I mean, Jesus' ministry on earth was preoccupied with healing people, physically and spiritually. We're celebrating in our church. There was a man two weeks ago, I was in a hospital ICU, get gowned up, wash my hands. I walk in there and the doctor say, he has about a 5% chance to live. This guy's in the late 50s, had no, no history of any of the stuff that was going on, started as a very small infection, grew to something much, much bigger, and we prayed as a church specific prayers for direct healing over parts of his body. Uh, he goes home on Wednesday. You know, like that does not happen, though, if we go in and say, God, I think you can do this. I, maybe you can, if it's your will. Like, no, it took direct naming of what we're asking for, releasing the, releasing the hurt, believing that Jesus is a healer even today. Jesus' ministry on earth, I mean, you, you can read the story just like I can, was preoccupied with physical healing and spiritual healing. Jesus himself believed that pain held is not pain healed. We see Jesus in a garden. What does he pray? He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, about to go to the cross, about to endure a bloody, terrible crucifixion. And he prays, not my will, but yours be done. He releases the pain. Pain held, friends, is not pain healed. I'm in my master's program, and there's a lot of things over the last couple of years that have really stuck out to me. But one was a small passage written by a 16th century French Christian writer 
named Francois Fenelon, which I think is one of the coolest names ever. If you're about to have a kid, Francois would be a great fit, you know? Francois Fenelon. But he was writing about this, and Francois endures some serious pain in his life. But he points out, and I think this is really, really helpful, that our pain in life is not actually the circumstance or the hardship or the difficult thing itself. Our pain in life comes from the resistance we have to bring it to God in prayer. Can I say that one more time? Our pain in life is not from the circumstance you may be in. It may not even be from the hardship or the crisis you're facing. The pain you're facing may actually be because you're gripping it so tight your nails are digging into your palm. He says, release it. Release it to God in prayer. It's our resistance to bringing those things that often brings us the most pain. I mean, man, this is true in marriage so much. That there are circumstances maybe you're facing right now that you wish you could fix and resolve. Maybe you are going through a difficult time. Maybe you've been in and out of counseling. Maybe you're wondering, are we going to make it through the end of this year? Can I just tell you, the right response is not to hold the marriage tighter. It's to release it more. Maybe you're parenting, and you've got a kid right now who you just wish, please, can you do one right moral thing in your life? Like, Can you, can you just figure out a way to, to do what I'm asking you to do and obey some rules and live within our guidelines? Maybe they're an adult child, and you're still praying that over them. I just tell you the right thing is not to grip the relationship tighter and micromanage it, maybe to release it to God in prayer. It may be the resistance we have that often keeps us from the healing God has for us. What happens, and I know this is true, and this is probably true of you just like it is of me, that when we hold pain and trauma and even the negative thoughts and things that were done to us in our life so tightly, what ends up happening is these fists close end up becoming an identity that we wear. It no longer becomes an event. That was true, 10th grade Mr. B. Like that was something 20 years later, 15, 20 years later, that I, that I had kind of, slowly implanted into my brain that that was just kind of something that was always true of me. And it was untrue. It's not in the Gospels. Jesus didn't say that about me. My parents never said that about me. It was just one word, one fleeting criticism from a teacher that was, and it got lodged in my brain, and slowly it was losing the war in my mind. But if we're willing to open our hands, we will see the work, the healing work of God in our own life. I know this is true because it's happened to me. I was in a counselor's office about two years ago. Had met, met with this guy on and off. We're meeting and we're talking about a whole bunch of different things. And he's bringing up stories, and I'm trying to like process my own wounds and stuff in my life. And and it was a totally new process. Like I grew up counseling bad. If you go to counseling, you are really screwed up. And I didn't ever think I was really screwed up. But I find myself later in life, late twenties, I'm sitting in a counselor's office processing some of the stuff that we just. I've been talking about. And he says, we're going to kind of end our time in prayer. And, and I want you to really listen to the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit brings a picture, an image, something in mind, I want you just to say it. We're going to pray around it. We're going to pray through it. God may be trying to communicate something to you. And so I say, okay, I'm very skeptical. I don't, I've only known this guy for like a month or two. I'm like, okay, this is going to be very, very weird, but I'll try it. I'm willing to try it. So we begin. We start praying. And he's just he's praying over me and talking about the things we've talked about, bringing it to God in prayer. He says, John, do you have any, any image, any picture that's coming to your mind? 
And I find myself slowly teleported back to the 10th grade classroom of Mr. B. And I'm sitting there in that classroom and I can see myself. It's kind of just like I'm hovering above myself in this picture. I can see myself with my head down and my books, my geometry textbook in front of me, and I'm discouraged. I'm, I'm disappointed in myself. I know I failed my mom, who's a, a certified public accountant. To fail in math is like the worst thing ever. You know, like I'm thinking about all these things. This is kind of what's happening in this time of prayer. He says, what do you see? And I, I share that vision just like I shared it with you. And then he just kept praying. He said, Holy Spirit, pray that you would just bring healing to that situation. Would you clarify your, your call, your identity over John in this moment? And I'm like, okay, I don't know what this guy's doing. It was kind of weirding me out. And then he says, do you see anything else? And slowly but surely, I saw a set of hands on the back of my shoulders. He said, do you see anything? I said, yeah, I see like two hands, kind of like kind of manly hands on the back of my shoulders, kind of over me. He said, do you see anything else? He just kept inviting, Holy Spirit, would you bring healing? Would you bring clarity? Would you bring just confidence in who John is in, in your name? And over time, what clarified, and I don't, I don't, I've not personally seen him, but the image was of Jesus with his hands on, on my shoulders, affirming me, saying that, John, you are not your worst math test ever. You're not the words of a critical teacher you are who I say you are. And this war in my mind, slowly over time, was being won by the presence of Jesus. It was his healing touch, I believe now, years later. I didn't really see it in the moment. I didn't even know. Like years later, I still was like, I'm not sure what that whole thing was. I'm not sure what that means. I'm looking back now, multiple years later, and seeing that that's what Jesus was doing. He was healing my mind. He was bringing clarity to, to who I was. And what we're talking about, here's the beauty of it. What we're talking about is not just true for individuals. You're here in a church. You're here in a community. You're, you're maybe in a group or you're gonna hang out for lunch after. Maybe you're a part of this family or maybe this is your first time. This is true. This healing work God does, not just in individuals, he does this in groups of people as well. Now, here's, here's something I've noticed about you. Here's what I've noticed about Story Church. I've been watching you for the last couple of years and God to know Kyle and, and he brags on you. Here's something I've picked up that you are a church that does not just want to show up. You really want to make a difference in your community. Stuff like hand-to-hand, -hand, stuff like going above and beyond during the week, serving, hosting NA and SA and AA and all the other A's, like hosting them here in, our, in your church building, doing things that, that kind of get outside of the walls of a traditional church. You want to make an impact in the community. But here's the thing. That the dark side of that is if you're not challenged, if you don't feel like there's a hill to take, a mission to live, that it's tempting to sit back and be inactive. It's tempting to sit back and stay apathetic or even spiritually bored. Just come, show up, and then go back home. Now, here's the thing. You, you can say, like, our, our desires to impact the community, our desires to go after that, and you can do that. Like you could have 10 times the amount of community impact you have right now, but if you do all those things in Jesus' name and still in your personal life, in the war in your mind, are holding pain, holding trauma, holding crisis, holding bitterness, you'll never accomplish all God has for you as a church. You'll fall short 
of the mission God really has for you is not just to transform people around you, but to be transformed by the renewing, like a making new process of your mind. This is the hope that we have. This is why the very last line, verse 27, here's what the writer of Lamentation says. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. What is he talking about? Jeremiah is talking about, and this is an agricultural reference, obviously, but referring it to a human being, it was the fact that you bear the yoke while you're young. You take on that way of life. You take it on. You may, if you know the scriptures, you may be thinking, oh yeah, I remember Jesus talked about this. Matthew 11, he says, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Learn from me, and I will lead you to rest. Jesus kind of adds this missional component in his words of take my way upon you, take my process on. And this is what Jeremiah is saying in, in Lamentations 3. Take this on, allow God, release the pain to him, and he will give you a mission. Do the inner work, do the hard stuff inside, and then God will be able to use you. Not that he can't use you before, but you'll never be experience the fullness of what that means until it happens in you. Pain held is not pain healed. Three really, really practical things I want to give you to start this. This may be a new journey for you. Maybe you, this is your first week even hearing about this series. You're like, whoa, what are we talking about here? This feels like counseling, and you have a microphone. I don't even get to talk back. Like, that's not even fair. Like, I'm not sure how this is supposed to go. Can I give you three really easy things to start doing? And this is something I'm going to do this week. The first is to name it. Name the pain. What is it? What's the word? What's the circumstance? What's the crisis? What's the thing you're facing that just feels too heavy for God? Name it. The second is to release it. Release it to God. Say, God, I I am so, my shoulders hurt from having to carry this pain. My shoulders hurt from resisting you. My, My shoulders hurt from the words or the circumstances or the events done to me. I'm gonna release it to you. You can do that in prayer. We're gonna sing a song or two. You can do that in this setting. You can do that by getting away. Maybe you need to meet with a counselor like I did. Maybe you need to retreat. The third is to stay engaged. Like, I'm clued in. I live in West Michigan. You know what summer means? Summer means spiritually coasting and and hoping you can make it to September again. Don't do that. Don't do that. That is a temptation from the the devil. Like, like do not do that. Stay engaged this summer. Maybe it means hanging after lunch. Maybe it just means, okay, you know what? We were going to be gone a lot. Maybe we're going to show up more. We're going to be a part of stuff more. I know that Josh and, and Kyle and this team have planned stuff for you this summer. I would just encourage you, stay engaged in that. Don't miss the opportunity to lean in to community. I'd love to pray for you, and then we're going to worship and respond to God together. Jesus, thank you for the invitation today. Thank you for the invitation that we can release the things that are hard and heavy and painful, maybe even decades ago, and you want to renew our mind. Your promise is that when we come to you, You will give us rest. You will give us the chance to flourish and to receive life from you again. And so that's what we do. We lean into your invitation. We say, yes, yes, Jesus, yes. You can heal, you can restore, you can redeem. We want all of it and nothing less. We come to you. We lay aside the way we think about you. We lay aside stereotypes we may carry about who you are and we just come to you the true 
real Jesus. And we offer you the things that are hard. We love you and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.